Well, you know, often when we read these passages, we think of Mary. We think of what it must have meant to her to, first of all, meet with an angel, as she did, and, and then to receive that message from the angel that she was about to have a baby and so on and so forth. You know, it was quite likely that Mary was only a young teenager, maybe 14, 15 years old at this time. She was not married. She was uh, betrothed to Joseph, but they weren't married. They had no um, sexual union or anything like that. So she, for all intents and purposes, was still seen as a single girl. And so to hear this message that she was about to have a baby, of course, that would have been a, a shock to her. We often speak about from that perspective. You know, as we think about the Christmas message, particularly as we think about Mary, if we understand our Catholic brothers and sisters properly, we understand that in their understanding of God's dealings with Mary, that Mary kept her virginity forever, even though she was later married children. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not that Mary was a virgin forever or anything like that. The point of the story is that there's no human involvement in Jesus coming into the world. The only human involvement is Mary. And everything that happens to her happens as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? What she was really saying I've not had any union with an angel. There's no man involved, even though she is betrothed to Joseph. And the point is that there's no human involvement in Jesus' conception and ultimately his birth. This is the work of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, acting through Mary ultimately in the world. But I don't want to focus too much on Mary. Focus on what God said through the angel to Mary. Now, last week we looked at um, what the angel said to Joseph from uh, Matthew chapter 1. In that passage, we see there's something about what Jesus would do when he came. In this passage in Luke, we see more about who Jesus would be when he came. So, I want to focus on that for just a minute. Focus on in particular that the angel said to Mary. The first thing is that the angel told Mary that this child to be born, Jesus, would be known as the Son of God. And one person calls him the Son of the Most High, and another person later on in the reading it says he'd be known as the Son of God. You know, some years ago, when Ingrid and I were spending some time in Norway. We went to spend Christmas with Ingrid's brother and his family. And as is traditionally uh, a Norwegian Christmas, we went to church on Christmas Eve. Uh, church service starts at four o'clock. It's already dark by then. People are preparing to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. And so the first thing they do is go to church. So we, together with the family and lots of other people, went to their local church. Now, this 
we went to, the building that we went to, comes from the 1700s. And it's one of those old buildings with big stone walls. The walls are about a metre and a half thick, I think. Inside, there's stained glass windows. There's ornate carved panel work and paintings. It's quite an elaborate uh, building. There's a couple of features in the building that took me, and uh, I took my fancy a little bit. The first thing, on one side of the main hall, about two metres above where everyone else sat was this ornate pulpit, obviously where the priest used to stand and preach, and it uh, uh, was quite an elaborate thing, stuck way up high on the wall. I guess it was originally built like that so that in the early days people could see him and hear him up above the, the crowd. But on the other side of the main hall, even higher up, there was like a closed-in balcony and it had a stairway going up to it. And I thought, well, that's for the priest. What on earth is that for up there? So I asked one of the family members, what's that up there? And they said, that's for the king. If the king comes to visit and he comes to church, that's where the king sits. And I said, what do you want to be up there for? And the family member said, well, he has to be higher than everyone else. He can't be lower than the priest. The priest is already above everyone else. So the king has got to be higher up still. And it's kind of weird for us Australians to think about this level of hierarchy. But when there's a king, king has naturally got to be higher than everyone else. Uh, otherwise, he's not seen as the one who rules and reigns. The king has got to be set apart and above everything else and everyone else. And so we read in this passage that Jesus would be known as the Son of the Most High. Now, we, like I said, we don't really get this idea of different uh, levels in our population. In a, as Australians, we think of everyone as equal, even though they're probably not really equal. But we like to think that everyone is equal. But, you know, when there's a king, a king rules and reigns from above, not from below. And not from an equal position with everyone else. The king has got to be above everyone else. And so it is with God. And when Jesus is called the Son of the Most High, now, think about kings and queens and other rulers that are above their people. And God is the Most High. What he's saying is there's no one higher than God. There's no king or authority that's above God. God is above all. God is ruler of everything. God is over everything and everyone. There's no king that's as high as our king. There's no God that's as high as our God. And Jesus will be the son of that God, of that king. Jesus would be the Son of the Most High. Now, in saying that, the angel is also saying that Jesus is God. You know, right here we have a hint of the Trinity. God is three persons in one. We're obviously speaking about Jesus, but in calling Jesus the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the angel is also saying Jesus is equal with God. If you're the son of someone, then you're above everything else and everyone else as well. 
And so Jesus also, although he's known as the Son of the Most High, is also the Most High. Jesus is God. We get there a glimpse of who Jesus would be. But he also calls Jesus the Son of David. Later on in that reading, we read that God would give him the throne of his father David. Now, this is a a thing that Matthew does quite often if you read through the book of Matthew, and you can read it later in the New Testament as well, where Jesus is called the Son of God and the Son of David. And there's a reason they do that. You see, as Son of God, we understand Jesus to be God, to be divine, to be above everything and everyone. But when we refer to Jesus as the Son of David, that's kind of a human a human touch or a human title that we're giving to Jesus. And it's a reminder that he's also man, human. If you're like me, you find this idea of thinking of things in two states at the same time kind of incomprehensible. How can someone be God and man at the same time? But Jesus was, and even though we have trouble comprehending that, that's what the angel was saying to Mary. He'd be the son of God, and at the same time, he's the son of David. God and man at the same time. We have trouble comprehending that, but Jesus still is fully God and fully man at the same time. It's part of the announcement that God was making to Mary through the angel. He also says, as Son of God, he would be great. Now, we say lots of things and lots of people are great. Great artist, a great singer, a great painter, a great sports person. But what this means when uh, the angel says to Mary, he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, the word great can also be understood as good, and what the angel is saying to Mary is not only will he be uh, the son of God, God, not only will he be the son of David, a man, but he'll be perfectly good, righteous through all his life. Now that's another thing we have trouble comprehending. We say, after all, we're just human, which is a code for we all make mistakes. And I've made another mistake. I'm just human after all. Jesus was human, but he lived the perfect life before his heavenly father. The angel is saying to Mary, he'll be the son of the most high. In other words, he'll be God. He will be the son of David. In other words, he's going to be a man. And he's going to be great. In other words, he's going to live a perfectly righteous life. He's going to fulfill all of God's uh, laws and requirements. He's going to live a perfect life before God. That's quite a statement in just those few words that the angel is making to Mary. Jesus, Son of God, Son of the Most High, is God and is man. Here's the second thing that I see in this passage. We're told that uh, God would give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom would never end. So not only is Jesus 
God and man at the same time. But Jesus is king, and he's going to be king forever. His kingdom will never end. His rule and his reign will never come to an end. Now again, as Australians, we don't get this king bit very well. We're so used to a democracy. We're so used to voting in and out the people we think we want to lead us. We vote them in, then we regret that we voted them in, so we vote them out, and then we regret that we voted them out. So we do this regularly, but we're not used to the idea of a king who rules all their life. And you get no say in whether they rule over you or not. In the early, early days, the king had ultimate control, complete control, and if his subjects refused to obey, off with their heads, and there was nothing you could do about it. Thankfully, the world has changed a little bit, and, and we enjoy democracy, but Jesus is called a king, and that's not a democracy. And we know that he's loving when he's reminded us around the communion meal of his nature, his loving nature, and his sacrificial loving nature, all that he would give up for us. But he's king nonetheless. And we're told that his reign would never end. He would establish... Now, now this goes back to uh, a promise that God had made to David. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to read about it, God promised David a number of things. One of the things that God promised David was that he would establish David's family line, that he would raise up David's offspring to rule after him on his throne, and that he would establish David's kingdom forever. And that someone would come from his family line who would reign forever. And of course, for David, that was just a great promise from God that his family name, his family line, his kingdom would live on after him. But Jesus comes into fulfillment of all of those promises to David as the king from David's line who would reign forever. Now, again, we struggle with the idea of king, but there's a couple of ways that we can understand the idea of king. I don't know if you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate, the governor, John's Gospel, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, obviously, the Jews had told Pilate that Jesus was claiming to be king, and what they were telling Pilate in that statement is his arrival to the Caesar, to the emperor. Jesus is setting himself up as a rival to the emperor, and he's wanting to take over the empire, and Jesus wasn't trying to do anything like that in a, in a human sense. But you see, Pilate understood the idea of king in political terms. And in political terms, there can only be one king. You can't have two kings ruling at the same time. That's going to be disaster. And so this idea that someone would set themselves up as king against the emperor was a real problem for Pilate. But you know, 
is another way to understand Jesus as king. Yes, he's coming as the political king one day, but right now, we understand that Jesus is king, reigning on his throne, but it's kind of a, 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 a the concept of, by which we understand Jesus' kingdom is by saying that he's already king, but it hasn't yet been manifest in the world. When Jesus returns, of course, then it will be visible and manifest in the world, but scholars like to talk about Jesus' reign as king as already, but not yet. He's already king, but we don't quite see it yet in the physical sense. But you know, as we follow Jesus, he's king of us. At least, that's the way it's meant to be. He's our king. If we're following Jesus, then we are submitting to his rule and reign in our lives. At least, that's the way it should be. But you know, I wonder sometimes whether we really, really understand that. The idea of a king. We say Jesus is my Lord and he's my king, but then we go and do whatever we want. In the, under a, a kingdom, you don't get to do whatever you want. There's things that you must stop doing and things that you must start doing because the king says so. So I wonder just how much is king of us. You see, last week I mentioned things like our thoughts, our attitudes, those offenses that we take, all of those thoughts, actions, attitudes and words that are so much a part of human life that don't bring glory to God and that really show which king we're serving or not serving. You see, if we are truly following Jesus as king in every area of our lives, then our thoughts will reflect that he's our king. Our words will reflect that he's our king. Our attitudes will reflect that he's our king. Our actions will reflect that he's our king. When someone says something to us that would normally offend us, our response to that reflects on whether Jesus is our king or not. So I guess as we think about Jesus as son of the most high son of God, and Jesus as King who reigns forever. My question for us, and for me included, is is He really King? Is He really King of our whole lives? It's so easy for us to allow Jesus to be King in those areas that we don't really care too much about. But other things we want to control ourselves. So if someone's king, they're a king of everything, whether you like it or not. And in the case of Jesus, it's so much better to submit to his rule and, and his reign voluntarily uh, because we know that one day he's coming again and he will establish his kingdom and his reign on earth in a visible, physical sense. 
And all of those enemies, all of those people that are opposed to his kingdom and his rule will be banished. And we don't want to be part of that, do we? So my question for us, as we think about the announcement of Jesus coming as God, as man, and as king, is he really our king? Does he really rule and reign in your life? Again, do your thoughts, words, attitudes, actions, motives, emotions, do all of those things that make us who we are, do they reflect that Jesus is our King? You know, Jesus is King whether you want to admit that He's King or not. But just because He's King doesn't mean that He rules you. So who rules you if not Jesus? If Jesus doesn't rule, then someone must. So who is that? Who rules those angry words when they come out? Or those hurt feelings when we get offended? Who's ruling them? Jesus came to rule and reign as king. And he wants to rule and reign over everything. And over all of us. Jesus came to take away our sins. He came as the Son of God. He came as the Son of David. He came as King to rule and reign forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promise of your coming rule. We know that you are ruling and reigning now, but we know that one day you're coming back to earth in a visible, physical sense so that we can see you and, and uh, be with you in that sense. And we thank you, Lord, that one day we can look forward to your uh, visible reign on the earth. But right now, Lord, we get to follow you as your children, as your subjects, follow you as our King through this life. And we pray, Lord, that as we do that, you'd enable us to live like people who know that you're our king, to live in a way that shows clearly who is ruling and reigning in us. So, Father, we commit ourselves into your hands. We commit the Christmas season into your hands as it gets closer. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember why you came and who you are when you came. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.